Our friends at OXO are celebrating their 30th anniversary this year by partnering with 1% for the Planet, giving 1% of sales back to environmental nonprofits. OXO's Karen Schnellwar tells us how OXO will be investing. We really wanted it to come from our heart, and we wanted it to come from our core of what we knew best and what we do best. First and foremost, people know us for home products in their kitchen, food, and that led us to identify our first bucket, sustainable food systems. We also have a robust cleaning line, and that led us to our second bucket, encouraging cleaner air, land, and water. And then our third bucket was inspired by our OXO top line of baby and toddler products. In that third bucket is environmental empowerment, which is early education, educating kids to become even better environmental stewards. To learn more about OXO's partnership with 1% for the Planet, visit OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Hi, Proof listeners, it's Bridget here, and on today's bonus episode, we're going to explore the genetics of taste. Now, to join us, we've got a really special guest here. We've got Dr. Danny Reed from the Monell Chemical Census Center. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Hi, nice to be here. So great to have you on the show because you all have done so much in terms of the research of our palates of taste. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do? And I've got a bunch of questions for you. I'm a scientist, and so I have a lab that looks a little bit like a mad scientist laboratory. (laughs) I have a freezer full of human spit. Actually, I have four freezers full of human spit. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't? Absolutely. It's (laughs) definitely the season for it. And so we divide our time between asking people to taste things that are sometimes quite unusual some extremely bitter things. And we try to put a few nice things in too. So we ask people to taste things and then we examine their DNA to see if we can figure out who can taste what and why. And we also study human twins because we like to compare the sense of taste in people that are genetically identical compared with people that are related to each other, often sisters or brothers, twins that are not genetically identical. So that's most of what my lab does. So I think this brings us to one of the questions, which is, in terms of taste, what we taste, how we taste, there's always a debate whether it's nature or nurture. Is it your environment? Do all the kids, you know, does my sister and my brother, have they kind of acclimated to the foods that my parents made for us and therefore shaped our taste buds? But I think it's the twins debate that really kind of isolates this and provides a lot of answers. At least that's what I'm hoping. Here's a way to think about what we've learned, which is how you're born, your nature determines the range of what you can taste and smell. So Hmm, for instance, yeah, so just like some people are born unable to see red and green colors, they're colorblind. Some people are born taste blind to certain things. They just absolutely can't taste them or they just absolutely can't smell them. And you can do everything in the world to try to be able to taste those things and you will never be able to because the receptors you're born with are broken. Right. So it's like I'll never play basketball professionally because I was born 5'2 and there's nothing I can do about that genetically. It just is as it is. Now, Well, not unless you and I come up with our own basketball league <laughs> and we get paid for it. Then we can do it because I'm also, I would say, vertically challenged. 
Absolutely. But as you correctly point out, then of course you're born with these limits and are born with these abilities, but then your life unfolds. And so many things happen to us from a sensory perspective, the things we eat as children, what we're given. I mean, who doesn't have a story about drinking too much alcohol and making themselves sick and never being able to drink again, fill in the blank, orange juice, tequila sunrise. Everybody has a story like that. (laughs) So I know that we know a lot more now than perhaps we did back in the day, but when exactly did people start to get interested in this? Different people perhaps having different or similar taste perceptions. It started really all of a sudden, the research in the early 1930s with a man named Alfred Blakesley. And what happened was he was uh, making a chemical in the lab. He was a chemist and some flew in the air, you know, sort of like if you've ever been transferring flour from cup to cup, the chemical flies in the air. And he noticed the chemical was really bitter and the guy working next to him couldn't perceive it at all. And they kind of had that moment where he's, they're kind of side eyeing each other. Like I can taste it. You can't taste it. What's wrong with you? And that moment, the scientist Blakesley really understood that some people cannot taste certain things that other people can. But one thing he did, practically the next thing he did, was organize this huge dinner full of fairly stuffy scientists. These scientists are all sitting at this huge banquet, but they're being served food that Blakesley had chosen to be what I call polarizing where some people can taste certain things bitter for some, taste not bitter for others. He even went so far as to put flowers on the table that some people can't smell, whereas other people could smell their fragrance. So that dinner was really the golden moment in this research where this whole field was born, where scientists finally could see in a very practical way that they were eating things and having very different experiences. And of course, that set off a whole chain reaction of trying to figure out, well, why is that? I wonder if there were any big arguments at that table. There must have been. Yeah. So what the scientists did was is try to figure out, like, well, why is this? What is the origin of these really big differences? And of course, you know, people think a little bit about saliva. So people were actually exchanging spit, thinking, well, maybe I can't taste bitter because I don't have the right kind of spit. And so there were some very cruel experiments where people traded spit to see if that would explain it. And it did like a so- <laughs> saliva transfusion there. Yes, saliva, <laughs> saliva swapping. But, you know, so, but that mercifully did not explain the reason. And so people looked for a genetic explanation to see if there were some types of mutations Mm. in the genes that we need to taste things that could explain these differences. And that's really what it's ended up being, that there's a lot of different things you need to have in your body to be able to taste and smell specific things. And some people are just born with broken ones. And I'm sure there are more modern connections that we're making to Blakely's dinner. Well, it turns out that as I'm a bicyclist, and so that's my hobby, which means that in the winter, I don't get out much. Um, so I was at home on the weekends, and somebody had given me a huge data set um, from Amazon food reviews to analyze. And so these are just the written reviews from hundreds of thousands of people on different foods. So I was just poking around, you know, with my computer programs and trying to look at these data. 
And, you know, obviously I'm interested in taste. So I found that people mentioned taste a lot in food reviews, probably no big surprise there. But this weird thing kept cropping up, which is people kept talking about sweet and sweetness. What are they saying about sweet? And I was really surprised that what people were doing was complaining that foods were too sweet. Cookies and candies and cakes and other things you wouldn't expect to be sweet, like crackers and things. And what we did is we compared people saying things are too sweet versus not sweet enough. And we found that people, you know, 10 to 40 times more were complaining that food is too sweet. And that really highlighted to me this idea of individual differences. You know, like if you're cooking something, you're kind of cooking for the average, I guess. You're sweetening something to appeal to the broadest number of people. But, you know, you're alienating some people who are just finding things are oversweet. And this really resonated to me because people were so vehement in their reviews and condemning food for being oversweet. So I thought that was a very elegant demonstration of people being very different in how they perceive their foods. Well, that's interesting, too, because with all of that data, you know how if you download certain music, people say that they can know certain things about you. And I wonder if the same thing, if we were to go through, but if we were to go through all of Bob Smith's reviews on Amazon and find that he thinks everything is too sweet, would we be able to maybe lock in that he has certain taste perceptors that maybe other people don't? Yes. I love that question. And you've really tapped into my secret fantasy, which is my fantasy <laughs> is just to have people have all the reviews that people have ever written together so we can asked exactly that question. Are they consistently haters on sweet? And then my other fantasy is then to have their spit so I can look at their DNA to see if we can explain that love or hate of sugar and sweetness by something that's in their DNA. Amazing. I do want to put out a little public service announcement. Do not ship your spit to the Manel Center <laughs> unsolicited, please. <laughs> but that would just be so fascinating if we could tailor foods for strangers. I call this the genotype restaurant. So the idea is, is that if you knew somebody's genetic profile, you could predict what they can and can't taste. And so then you might take a stab at what they like or don't like. So I think that's a really cool idea where I would genotype you before you show up at my dinner table. And then I put something before you that I know might appeal to you. You could just put a big old table of bacon in front of me and I would be really happy. <laughs> But this really connects tastes that a lot of it is rooted in our bodies and our very biology. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a biological reason for all the things that we can taste. Sugar for calories, umami for protein, sour for fermented foods, but too much is too much. And we really need to make sure we get the just right amount of salt. So we need to be very tuned into that so that we don't go overboard one way or the other with something as simple as salt. So let's talk a little bit about your travels to, I think it was Twinsburg, Ohio. Absolutely. So Twinsburg, there's a festival every year, first weekend in August, which really like a country fair, but for twins. And it's twins of all ages, stages and sizes. And they come every year to Twinsburg, Ohio to have a good time, talk to other twins. Um, there's contests and rides and delicious food, but there's also research that goes on. 
And so they love to come and participate in research. And we do just exactly what you think we would love to do, which is we give them different things to smell, to taste, to eat and to drink. And we see whether the twins that are genetically identical are more similar in what they like and can perceive than twins that are no more alike than siblings. Those are the fraternal twins. So what did you find out? What was the study that you did this time around? This last time around, we were very popular because we did a study on how people perceive the fattiness of potato chips. And normally we give people nasty things like bitter (laughs) compounds or really sour or salty things. And this time we gave them potato chips. So we were everybody's best friend this last year. Yes, I can imagine. (laughs) So we're really after the idea of like, we know everybody likes fat or most people like fat, but is it really a taste or what is it? You know, how do we perceive it? And so we were using the twins to try to get at that issue. The desire was to control the amount of fat that they were consuming in the test. Exactly. So can they tell the difference between high and low fat potato chips And do they like them the same or different? So those were the kinds of questions we were asking. So the chips are pretty much just your basic potato chip, not much salt or anything like that. We just vary the amount of fat. And of course, it turned out exactly the way you predict, which is people like the higher fat chips much better. Right. And the twins were very similar in which of the chips they preferred and how good they were at telling how much fat there was in them. Wow. And so you found that twins basically were able to identify their preferences and match it, at least identical twins more than fraternal? Exactly. Yes. So we found that if people were genetically identical, they were much more similar in their ability to detect the fat. You know, if one of them really liked the high fat, then the other one really liked the high fat. So Dr. Reed, what does this mean? Your findings, what does it tell you? Where do we go from here? So before we started working, fat was really a mystery. Is it a taste? Is it not a taste? Is it something that people sense in the same way they sense sugar or salt? And what this research teaches us is there's an actual biological mechanism that senses the taste of fat in the mouth. And that information coupled with the DNA samples that we obtain are going to allow us to actually identify we hope, the actual receptors on the tongue that sense fat. So we're hoping to make fat a legitimate taste and have the same sort of cachet that sweet and sour and salty and bitter do. So fat being perceived as a taste or being accepted as a taste, that would change a lot. That could change how we look at developing recipes, how we create new food products for, as you mentioned before, specific preferences. And it maybe it's not just, here's the, our regular version and our low-fat version. Maybe there's medium-fat version or overloaded, which, you know, I would buy that. Yes. I mean, just like we trick the sweet receptor by putting in high-potency sweeteners like sucralose or AC-sulf-MK or all the high-potency sweeteners, right. we trick the sweet receptor into thinking that there's some caloric goodies to be had. If we knew the fat receptor, we might be able to be up to the same kind of trick and to make something that would stimulate the fat receptor, but wouldn't maybe carry all the calories. So that's one application. Well, we've got so much more to think about now with fat. And thank you so much, Dr. Daniel Reed. We really appreciate coming on Proof. Absolutely. It was totally my pleasure. <laughs> 